Well, welcome everybody back to an episode of EM Over Easy. Andy Little here with Drew and Tanner, the three amigos at DK Diner. Wanted to bring you guys another clinical grind. So it's been a while since we've uh, got one of these recorded and done. And really, this is a, this is a case that I had. So I guess we'll start it out with a case presentation. So I was working overnight at one of the shops um, when... What do you sell at that shop? Uh, cars. Yeah. Car shop? Car, car shop. shop. Yeah. I was working car overnight shop? in an emergency department. Video game shop. I was working overnight. Twenty-four hour video game. Show. It'd be cool because a lot of people stay up all night. People would do that to play video game. Two a.m. would be a popular. You time. beat one of the video games in the middle of the night. You're like, dang it, I need a new video game. Boom! Twenty-four hour video game shop. I was working overnight in an ED um, where I work at. Ah, uh, now I understand. Uh, was working. You know, we were busy like always. Uh, as we all know, it's always busy at work. And an APP came up to me and they did a case presentation. They said, Andy, I need some help with, with this patient. And so they kind of run through what they describe as an impossible patient. And so they kind of set the stage. So it was a, an elderly female brought in by, by family. And when I say family, it was the family. It was husband, three daughters, three son-in-laws, The two room was full. You know, they, 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 they brought the whole posse Everybody's at 2 o'clock there. in the morning Everybody's there. Um, to the emergency department. And, uh, and so they... Deemed impossible. So elderly female, recently diagnosed with uh, lung cancer, very, very severe stage, had just spent uh, four or five days in the hospital, was seen by an inpatient hospice team, and was sent home um, on hospice. So they made her a DNRCC prior to discharge. And uh, the story is is they, 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 t- they took the mom home. Nobody in the family is medical. And as, as we all know happens sometimes, she got a lot sicker. So she went home. They had oxygen, but she had increased work of breathing, was very, according to the daughter, what sounded like very diaphoretic, just very, very sick, and they got worried. And so they called 911, brought the lady in, and the APP said, what, do I, what am I supposed to do with this lady? And so when you guys hear DNRCC, increased respiratory distress, recently diagnosed with cancer, on hospice, a bunch of people in the room, what, what kind of goes through your head? The thing that bothers me with the DNRCC designation is that a lot of people have preconceived notions with that. And DNR does not mean do not treat. Yeah. You can still treat these patients. You can still actively work them up. Yeah. The only difference is, in my opinion, is you just want to make sure you're staying within their wishes and desires. So if they come in and the patient's alert enough to talk to you, you can just ask them, hey, do you want me to do this? I can help fix your breathing. I can help look for possible signs of infection and treat that with antibiotics. I can make your pain better. Do you want this? The, the problem becomes when they're not able to answer that and then you have just family. Because oftentimes that's where the biggest difficulties lie is when you're managing both a family of a DNRCC patient and a patient that can't talk for themselves. I, I completely agree. I, I actually, for the most part, don't care about DNRs. And, and that's a weird thing to say. Uh, DNRs are fantastic to have when somebody comes in, per, true peri-arrest, coding, and family or EMS is able to present you with a DNR, and then you can you can honor that yeah. in a situation where maybe there isn't a lot of family available or the, the patient can't speak for themselves. But if a patient comes in talking, even in some type of distress, or the family has a concept of what's going on, there's multiple family members there, the DNR is just a trigger for me to understand that this is a family that I need to figure out what their wishes are and what the patient's wishes are. So it doesn't matter if it's a DNR, it's a DNRCC, it's a DNRCCA. It's, it's spending time up front mm-hmm. to be very clear and say, what, what are the constraints, limitations, and wishes that you guys have, or what are your expectations yeah. for your encounter here in the emergency department? 
is this a situation where you really want us to do everything we can until her heart stops or she starts mm-hmm. breathing? Yeah. Or even if she stops breathing, we continue to do everything we can until the heart stops. Is this a situation where you're just looking to make somebody more comfortable? And if we find something that's treatable, how far and how aggressive do you want us to, to go in to treat it? And those are the important things that you have to you have to address. It doesn't matter if it's a CC, a CCA, not a CCA. It doesn't even matter if it's not a DNR because there's lots of patients that you can clearly feel that palpable feeling in the room and say, this is a patient that there's concerns, but they probably don't want everything done. There's a limit to their expectations. Even though they don't have official DNR orders in place or paper signed, they clearly don't want to go through everything that could potentially be there. So you just, what are the limitations and expectations? These, these are, you're exactly right. These are definitely patients where your biggest bang for your buck is talking with them as opposed to test results and things like that. Cause that's going to help guide your management. Whereas there's other patients that will come in and the only thing that you need is tests and you know that you can dispo that patient. Yeah. These are different. So, so like you guys talked about, I, I kind of went into the room and, uh, because there was, like I said, they brought the family. The, the initial demographic was finding in who in the room is the decision maker. So I think that's also real key in these situations when they bring a lot of people. So I, I sat down, realized the husband was at bedside. The patient was actually talking to me and cohesive. She was able to give me kind of a, uh, a general plan of, or at least a history of what happened. It sounds as though she was on a couple liters of oxygen in the hospital, went home, and just got worse because they sent her home on less than what she was. And so as... As we talked through kind of the whole scenario with family, I found that there was definitely maybe a disagreement in the room with what the actual plan was, which I think is what actually triggered them to come in. And that's where I think maybe from the other provider that presented the case to me is that they didn't want to spend the time in the room having this conversation like we talked about. So uh, as we talked through the case with, with the family and with husband and, and everything, you could tell there was a lot of emotions because a lot of people were really coming to grips with you know, that they had decided, made a decision as a family, and this might be her last weekend, her last week at home. And they were, come to find out, they were trying to get other family members there to come visit her before this all happened. And, and so throughout the encounter, um, I actually, did, we didn't do a lot of tests. Before I went in there, a chest x-ray was done, protocol, and she had a little bit of pneumonia. So, so as we went through this case with the family, um, I was in the room probably for about an hour and a half. It's a long, long, long bedside talking. And it was nice because once I got the general feeling from the family, I literally went through. I said, hey, why don't we come up with a plan? Let me talk with patient and dad because they're the kind of the patriarchs of the family. And I said, and then we'll just go around the room. I said, and I'll talk to each one of you individually with mom at bedside so we can get what mom wants because she's still able to tell us that. And so it was kind of, to me, it was a really kind of cool experience, although I didn't realize I was in there that long, but I talked to, you know, multiple children, husband, multiple grandkids that had questions. And at the end of this, we came up to the kind of solution that they just really didn't know what dying looked like. And I think that's probably where there was a disconnect with what they were told in the hospital of what to expect to what they saw that when I was able actually to sit down and talk with them and be real personable, you know, I, I look, have had this experience with family members to kind of explain what the death and dying process was, um, that they felt a lot more comfortable with either a plan of admission or going home, but they felt more comfortable with it. So when people ask you guys, I mean, if you've ever had to go through this, how do you guys explain dying to people? Because to me, that was, that was something that I had never, I mean, I, I had been in the room for, I had kind of done partially with families, but it was a new experience. And as I was doing it, I felt comfortable that I was doing, but I had never had to put those words together before. I think it's an interesting question. I actually don't really talk about dying yeah. um, in large part because I don't 
know what dying looks like because everybody dies differently. Um, You know, in the ED, we think about dying more as a code that you can't get back, a trauma that's something abrupt. You talk about, you think about a major event. Some people, that's that is how they died. That's not what we're talking about today. And then other people, you know, slowly just drift off. Their blood pressure gets lower and lower. Their heart rate gets lower and lower. Their breathing gets slower and slower. And then some people truly just that's it. You know, you, you, yeah. the the scariest thing and we, is the patient that you know is really sick and they looks at you and they're like, I have to have a bowel movement, right? And, and they just look like junk in the room. And they're like, and then they have a bowel movement. And, and you're you just go, like, well, oh, that was it. That's it. That's yeah. it. So I, I don't know that I talk about dying. I, I, it's again, it's an expectation. And it's a, what, what are, you know, is the goal here to just keep somebody comfortable yeah. and to make it so that they're not in pain, they're not suffering, and that they're at peace through whatever process is about to occur. And I make it real clear that I have no idea. I have no idea if this is going to be 10 minutes or if this is going to be 10 days or if this is another 10 weeks because the reality is we have no clue yeah. in most of these situations. And I, and I had a patient sort of similar. I was seeing with a resident who was on hospice. The hospice nurse was tied up with another patient at, so couldn't come to the house to help with the, to help the family and recommended they come to the ED. Mm-hmm. She was sick. She probably had a nasty urinary tract infection. Family was okay with fluids and was okay with antibiotics but didn't want intubation, did not want pressers started, yeah. didn't want anything more aggressive. Um, and I thought that was very reasonable. And for a little while, the pressures were getting softer and softer and softer despite us giving fluid hydration, maybe not super aggressive, yeah. but giving fluid hydration. And... This is a situation we have to talk with your nurses and make it really clear. We are, we're going to get pain medicine regardless of what the vitals look like because if the patient's in pain, she's going to get treated for pain. Yeah. And if it is the third dose of morphine that ultimately bottoms out her blood pressure, so be it, right? That's, that is what the family and the patient yeah. want. And it was a situation where we actually held the patient in the ED to see was she going to pass quickly or not. Because the last thing I want to do is have somebody pass going to their hospice yeah. bed on the floor or to get settled into the bed for literally 10 minutes when they pass and there's no relationship with that with the nurse that and nursing with the team, team the, the floor when yeah. there's already a relationship here in the ED mm-hmm. ultimately the patient kind of stabilized blood pressure improved a little bit we got her up to a room but it's it's one of those I, I don't know how to answer that question because I don't know what dying looks like but that's, those are kind of the thought process that I go through and and you just have to individually identify each patient I think you're right on target I think I've never really thought in specifics on how I would talk about how dying happens, but in general for me, I just don't make any promises because it's like Drew said, it's going to be completely different for every person. And some people like on some of my hospice rota- and palliative care rotations, you see somebody at the end of life and they sound like, like a, a bubbling teapot. Like it's just like there's so much fluid in their lungs you don't even know how they're actually getting any oxygen. And it sounds terrible, but if they're on hospice, palliative care, comfort care, and they're already being taken care of, they're not uncomfortable. They're, they're, we're, we're treating their, their discomfort and their, their pain and their difficulties breathing. And to me, that's the important part is no matter how you're dying, we can help make it comfortable. Yeah. And that's usually the, the message that I try to get across is because that's what, that's what most people are afraid of. They're afraid of either a lonely death mm-hmm. or a death where they are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And if you can take care of those two fears with a lot of family members, that's usually going to help the situation a lot. And, and I got to, to be honest, when I'm talking to the family, when I'm doing these situations, I am not going through a checklist with the family, but I'm creating a checklist in my head yeah. as to what is and isn't on the table for treating this patient. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm done with the patient interaction for the moment, and I feel like I have my checklist, 
I try to get the team together. So if I'm working with a resident, I'm working with an APP, the nurses that are taking care of it, even the charge nurse potentially, and you sit down and go, here's here's what is and is not on the table for this patient, and here's how we're going to manage it. So everybody's on the same page, and there's not a lot of questions. Things work pretty smoothly because the calmer and the smoother we are as the yeah. ED team taking care of these patients while we have them, the calmer and more composed the family is going to be mm-hmm. and it allows them to focus on spending time with their loved one in potentially their last minutes as opposed to trying to cope with us being out of our element and the, and the reality is we're out of our element when we're dealing with palliative care mm-hmm. and hospice like patients in the ed but i think we've started to talk about this enough where we're beginning to gain an understanding and there's been some great podcasts and some great articles written about how to manage this to take care of these patients in a dignified appropriate manner and I would add on to that that if if you're a medical student resident attending and you are privy to watching a good death, someone who is coached and helped into their last breath, managed very well by somebody else, take note of all the things that that person does, yeah. how things are gone, you know, what what's gone through, what medications are given, how the family members were taught, uh, you know, touched, expressed approach to all the scenarios that go into a good death because that's going to help you so much down the road when you have your own patient that you have to deal with so kind of to touch most of those things when i had this conversation with them i did a lot of kind of happenstance or ifs i said her breathing may get worse she may require more oxygen like juice said i did nothing was definite we had a very open kind of loose timeline that we talked about um and I think at the end of it, it was nice because, you know, there are a lot of tears shed, a lot of I mean, open crying by family members, but a lot of emotions. And just in that 90 minutes, definitely felt like that family grew from not knowing what the mom wanted to really being all on board. And I think that was kind of the magic of, uh, of the time I spent in the room was just the idea that I walked in with three daughters who did not agree with mom's plan to three daughters who were 100% behind it, understood what was expected of them as, as, as daughters and as, as, as sisters and really kind of banded together to where when, um, when everything was put on the table at the end, they all went home with a plan knowing that this is what was going to happen to mom. Um, and I think, like you guys said, you have to be very supportive and be very honest because I think that's part of it too is that sometimes in, in not wanting to give specifics, we don't maybe aren't honest enough, but you just have to be honest that this is going to get worse. This is how it might play out. Um, and I think that was when I kind of went that way instead of playing hypothetical, I don't know, I, they actually bought into the idea that, that they felt comfortable with the plan. So it actually was a really, really good case. Um, ended up being where after the 90 minutes in the room, we had a, def- a definitive plan and really simple things. Like they, they had home oxygen at home but didn't know how to turn it up. So I had them go home and bring their oxygen in, and we had a nurse show them how to increase the oxygen for what it was originally set for. Um, they were prescribed some medicine for pain, and they didn't know how to take care of it. So we had another brother go get the medicine and bring it in, and we explained how we, what the dosing actually meant because there was a little bit of co- confusion for what that meant. And then we talked about, like we said, she did have pneumonia, and we had an open discussion. I can treat this, or we can just say that this is how your mom's going to pass away. She's going to die of pneumonia. And at the end of it, they were all on board with the idea that mom would not want antibiotics. Mom would just want to go home. And so kind of to resolve the case, you know, um, I, I didn't work there for about two weeks, but when I came back, uh, there was actually a note in my mailbox with this kind of this detailed of what happened. And she went home and um, she passed away that when we talked identically how she wanted to, she died in the arms of her husband and her bed at home with her kids around her. And it was really kind of those, it was a moment that really made me realize that we probably, these are the patients you care about. I'm not saying that I don't care about all my patients, but these are the patients that are worth spending the time with to give them that end of life 
how they wanted it, rather than in a resuscitation bay with a with a tube down their throat, lines everywhere, um, kind of in hysteria. So, Andy, you talk a lot about beauty to death ratio in yeah. some of your other um, in a lecture you give and some other podcasts, and this is a situation where you can have beauty in death, mm-hmm. and I think that's what's so amazing about these situations you can really impact a patient and their family and and help them die in a dignified way and in a way that we can feel good about it because oftentimes we our default is to feel bad about people dying because our job is Mm -hmm. to save people and this is that inverse situation where our job is to actually help somebody die and help the family and the patient do it in a better way and i think it's really interesting you mentioned that you know the patient goes home some people want to go home and die and they They just want to have the resources and the understanding of what that process is going to be. Some people would prefer to do it in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, either are totally appropriate. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, we're fortunate in one of the places that you and I work, Andy, that we have palliative care uh, in-house five days a week for, you know, about 12 hours a day. And they can actually come and help manage help these with patients, the situation, yeah. manage these patients um, in, in the hospital. A lot of places don't have that as a mm-hmm. resource. You know, one other thing is I'm thinking about this in the cases I've done and, and similar to what you did is even if this isn't your primary patient, you know, if you're seeing the patient with a resident or an APP, um, these are really the patients that I try to, I, I put the onus 95% of the time on whoever is primarily taking care of the patient to manage the patient yeah. and I'm there for backup. And this is another situation where I invert that a little bit yeah. and I kind of take over and it's more of the traditional, if I have a resident with me, it's the, I'm the attendant, you're going to shadow me for a little bit. Yeah. So you're going to watch how I do this. And I'm not saying that I do it great and, and I'm perfect, but this is a situation where a consistent message mm-hmm. with being led by the supervising physician mm-hmm. Goes to, a long way. to aid the situation just cleans up so many loose ends that otherwise exist when there's multiple people that are trying to take ownership of what's going on. And I try to make that real clear that this isn't me usurping uh, my resident and saying you're not good enough to do this because they are good enough to do it. It's just this is a situation where you're going to have your opportunity someday. But for the family's sake, for the patient's sake, and for your education's sake, this is how we're going to do it. Yeah. So that's you know another thought as we're going through all this is a lot of us work with residents or we have APPs that are seeing these patients. And, and I really think the onus is on us as the supervising physicians to, to take charge. Completely agree. Two, two things to kind of add to that is, you, and you basically said it, make sure you utilize the resources that you have. A lot of these patients that are already set up in with DNRCCs have either been set up with hospice or palliative care. There's typically a team that is aware of these patients. Try to contact them. Use those resources because they will help you guide this process, especially on disposition, whether this patient goes home, whether they're getting admitted somewhere. And usually they're going to get admitted somewhere that is under the palliative care realm and they have everything set up for that. So make sure you call and, and talk with them and, and help them. And a lot of times they'll come to your ER, wherever you're at, and they'll, they'll yeah, help the process. somebody on call. No, it's true. And the other side of this is, and we're talking about the very end of, of death here, but a lot of times in the ER, we are seeing the patients before they're at that point. And we, like you hinted at earlier, a lot of times we see the walk in the room and it's palpable. Like, you know, this patient probably is terminal. They're not going to have a significant recovery of their lifestyle that they used to know. And starting the conversation of saying, hey, have you ever heard of hospice? Have you ever heard of palliative care? What do you know about it? Get an idea of what they, what their premonitions are. And we're not here to like sell palliative care or uh, comfort care or anything like that. But at least plant the seed that it's a beneficial thing. This is not doctors trying to kill you or someone that's going to let you die. It's someone who is going to help you and give you all the resources you can for to make the rest of your life as good as it possibly can be. Yeah. Agreed. 
Well, guys, thanks so much for letting me bring this case uh, to the to the to the mic so we can talk about it. And if our listeners have any other cases, you know, we're still waiting for that case from a listener. So if you've got one out there um, that we can chat about and talk about and have it be part of a clinical grind, or you want to come on and be a guest um, for a clinical grind, just reach out to us at emovereasy.com or at emovereasy at gmail.com is our email and follow us on social media, which now includes Instagram. So until next time, guys, thanks so much.